Jingi walla blagami arako dogum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bogube blagame. Thank you, Delta K, a Rakul Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to Conversations from Byron, a podcast series featuring writers from the 2020 festival lineup. In this session, Michael Christie talks with Sophie Cunningham about his new novel, Greenwood, which is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com. Well, this morning I'm talking to Michael Christie. It would have uh, been wonderful to be talking to him in Byron Bay itself. And I'm not sure whether to rub this in, Michael, but you really would have liked Byron Bay a lot. And the surf is pretty fabulous. So I'm sorry about that. So I've heard, yeah, it's a real disappointment for me not to make it there, but totally understandable, of course. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. for all the festivals that haven't been out to be live this year, this is the one that, that broke that my hurts. heart. That hurts, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hurts the most. But in fact, last time, when I met you, the um, only time I met you was in at the Adelaide Festival earlier this year when the kind of consequences or the this year was unfolding, beginning to unfold. We'd already had our bushfires, but the um, issues around the pandemic were starting to just become really known. Um, and as much as that's relevant to your work, and I do not want to talk about the pandemic through most of this conversation, but I am curious to know, um, given that your book does talk about um, or the great withering, which is environmental as as, as well as a kind of a health crisis that that's global and, and and a depression how did when did you start to register what was happening and how did it affect your getting back to Canada and all those just as your book was coming out in Australia it must have been quite difficult it was I, mean, I don't want to overstate my own personal difficulty at a time when so many people are suffering so much more than I am but I yeah I was in Australia just as the things were getting rolling uh, and I had a number of conversations even while I was in Adelaide about with my publicist and my agents and people about what what point I should come home things were very still uncertain and then I had a US book tour actually scheduled after uh, after my trip to Australia. So I came right back to San Francisco, did a number of very, very poorly attended events. One of them was like one person in basically sort of a hazmat suit. I mean, it's a very brave, a brave individual, maybe a big fan, maybe did not. Did they buy the know. book? They did buy the book. Yeah, they was, didn't want me to sign it, though. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't do any signing for as a precautionary measure. But uh, and then I ended up in Seattle when I had other events planned. But at that point, uh, we decided to sort of pull the plug. So I took a ship home uh, from. I live near Vancouver and just kind of sat on the deck in the open air the whole way and uh, made it home. And then self quarantined after that, which was you know par for the course. Yes. Well, what in your novel, Greenwood, and by the way, I should have mentioned that's your third book, um, your second novel. Uh, in that novel, there is, uh, am I right, in, the great withering is a sort of issue around trees dying of having die back. 
the trees are dying off and that's creating an environmental catastrophe and a sort of dust bowl situation. And at this and people are also becoming quite unwell, not in the way that COVID nineteen makes people unwell, but more is it is it it's related to the dust or is it a form of T B? I it is, is it yeah. It's it's uh, it's, it's colloquially it's referred to as rib wretch, um, and I just basically took it from the reports of uh, during the dust bowl. This it's sort of uh, the the dust in the air was causing all kinds of lung problems, long lasting lung damage, and particularly children, but also just anyone in the you know Oklahoma or those sort of heavily affected areas. So I just sort of extrapolated that forward into the future so given that you were having you were thinking about these things actually just maybe we'll step back how long did the book take to write how long have you been thinking through quite so and in such an articulate way these issues around um a kind of unraveling um environmental unraveling yeah i mean it didn't begin as an environment a quote-unquote environmental novel it began Either way, most of my work does, which is with some people, uh, with some characters, some individuals. And I also I decided early on that I wanted to write about one particularly one particular family throughout history. Um, and I sort of gathered that the family had something to do. Each generation of the family would have something to do with trees, be that environmentally, uh, from an industry perspective, from a sort of a craft perspective. And, and so that was my, uh, way in and, you know, and it's interesting to, you know, I've been obviously like everyone thinking a lot about public health crises, like the one we're going through now. And, you know, the, a big part of my novel, I think is, you know, the sort of demonstrating the idea or trying to demonstrate the idea of the interconnection of everything between the environment, between our health, between individuals, between societies. Um, and so this has been a kind of a further demonstration of just how uh, precariously interconnected we all are. And has that, that made this current situation better, worse, or you haven't really been thinking of it like that. I'm asking because I listened to an interview recently with a writer. I think he also was Canadian, and he he had been researching um, kind of apocalyptic bunker cults, and he was talking about after having done all that work, he decided he would not be a bunker guy. He just like, in fact, like very much like your fabulous character, Jake, he'd just be out in the world and see what happened yeah this kind of and and it is actually relevant it, it is in the broader sense your novel is about ideas of home and safety whether these things are possible and how we might pursue them yeah and there's you know in the future section of my novel there are, you know there's sort of a there's a the Greenwood Arboreal Cathedral, it's called, which is sort of a the last one of the last remaining old growth forests in the world, and it's turned into a kind of a refuge for the elite and for the very very wealthy to go and sort of bathe in the forest and act like everything is okay when in fact the world is tumbling into disaster. Um, and so, you know, the, I I was thinking a lot about you know, and I do still. I mean, it, particularly for being a Canadian, you know, you're very aware of the fact that uh, you're living in a country that has a lot of water, that has a lot of space, that has a lot of forest, and is going to be 
a little bit maybe more resilient to the climate change, the effects of climate change than other places and how what a sort of a privilege that is. And, 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 you know, sort of, there's a kind of a feeling of guilt, I think, associated with it for a lot of Canadians, you know, like, why do we get to have so much access to outdoor space and so much don't fresh water. Don't feel too guilty. Do yeah. not feel too guilty. It's just privilege. It's just, yeah, that's just how I think. Yeah. yeah. So part of that was my thinking as well. Um, and so let, let's, and trees, I mean, I do actually want to come back to trees because that's partly my own personal obsession, but I particularly want to talk about trees, the structure, trees and structure in this novel so as um, people who've had a look or even read the novel will, will know it it's a kind of ringed structure which takes from the idea of um, tree ring of rings in trees um, and so you have sequences set in 1908 in that, that comes up past um, you know goes into into the dust ball era doesn't it into the yes it does yep, 90s. yes and then um, to th- um, 1974, 2008, and then 2038. And I, what came first, a sort of a, a passion for trees or a realisation that that was just because it is a, it's a beautiful structure and it allows the novel to be really complex and fabulous without feeling those things in a kind of heavy-handed way because the structure does so much beautiful work in the book. So I'm kind of curious to know how you came up with that idea. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a small kind of working-class town in northern Ontario, which is in the middle of the boreal forest. There's a pulp and paper mill there. There, you know, My grandfather was a carpenter. Uh, I did construction work as a young man. So I've always, I, I think my life has been entwined with trees in, in a sort of a similar fashion um, to the Greenwoods in, in, in some ways. And um, the, the narrative structure, however, of the novel, I'm a bit of a narrative structure nerd and it's sort of something I do a lot, of, I think a lot about um, how best to tell a particular story. I'm sure you do. Yeah, your book is brilliantly structured. And so, how best to tell a particular story because there's so many ways of doing it um, and which way will serve the story best. And, and for this novel, I, I mean, it's, it's going to sound a little bit hokey, uh, but I, I had these characters and I had this family and I, you know, there was these sort of these, these people circling and, and living in my head. Um, but at one point I was clearing uh, my driveway on, on Galliano Island, making way for a driveway and I had to take down a tree I cut down a tree, not a giant tree, it was a Douglas fir, um, and looked at the stump um, and was just sort of struck by the fact that a tree is, is in a sense, a narrative, that there is a timeline in a tree and that there's an accumulation of time and of years each year, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, of course, uh, but that this was a kind of a map uh, and it was, a, it was the story of this particular tree's life. And I thought, what if you could emulate that in a novel structure? And that's and after I after I got that idea, then things really started to kind of coalesce and the story started to come together. That's what I actually find, isn't it? That you have to think about a novel for a long time and then there's some idea which just kicks you into it. Like you suddenly think, 
I see. I can do this. It's yeah. a beautiful, one of the few beautiful moments. Really, it is. In yeah. The, process. <laughs> the few for sure. And I, there's a, there's a definite, I often, I think literary fiction is very difficult to define and, uh, but the, there is one definition of literary fiction that I like, and that is that each work of literary fiction is its own genre, that it's, it ought to do something innovative and define itself new. Um, and that's what, I think that's what I was trying to do, was to come up with some sort of innovative structure uh, to tell the story. As you were talking, I thought there's this really beautiful quote from the book, which I'm going to read, which is on these issues. But it's um, when you're contemplating the way generations experience the passage of time, you write, it simply accumulates in the body, in the world, like wood does, layer upon layer, each triumph and each disaster written forever in its structure. Um, anyway, so, which I love. I love that quote, but I also loved, <laughs> loved that um, how it works through the book. Um, and so you said you, I didn't know that you'd um, been a carpenter, woodworker. So there's a bit of, must be a bit of Liam. I did, I wondered as I was reading because there is a character who, who it does work in, in carpentry. Oh, yeah. Um, he, I, he's I, a builder I, and he yeah. has a tough time, but I'm not going to dwell on that. He but does. it's like, it's, it's not, it's not great for Liam. A lot of the time. I'm happy to, I'm happy to report that my life, I've had an easier go than Liam uh, so far. I kind of assumed yeah. in some ways yeah. that you must have. But I did, it, one of the things that, well, there are two things that I really, really stayed with me with um, about the way you worked with your characters. One is that they're not heroes. They're anti. Well, then, nor are they anti-heroes. They're, very, I suppose, they're flawed heroes. I'm not quite sure what the, the phrase, the right word is for it. But you really show people warts and all. I mean, most obviously in Harris, but you do that with Jake as well, who's a twenty thirty eight, the youngest, um, the most recent member of this intergenerational. Um, story who you start off thinking oh she's our heroine and then you start to think no well she is but she's also pretty flawed and Lomax who's a significant character is also has has is terribly flawed do you want to tell you you're interested in flaws please discuss (laughs) wow this could go I could go on for some time I mean I I just I love books with no clear villains I think that's another definition of literary fiction in the sense that you know, there are no good guys and bad guys or, and, 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 you know, the, the true complexity of human life is portrayed. And those are the books that I love. Um, and that is, are the, those are the characters that I gravitate, gravitate towards. I mean, I think I, I, you know, people often remark on the fact that, you know, like, wow, this Greenwood family has, you know, not had the easiest time, uh, you know, throughout history. And I, you know, I, I, I come from a family where, you know, mental illness and addiction were quite prominent through a number of generations. Um, uh, and I've, you know, had my own struggles with various difficulties. Um, and, you know, I, for a period of time was working in a homeless shelter for people with significant mental illness and, um, drug addiction. So it's, I mean, I've, I've always just been really interested in the way people struggle and the way, the complexity with which we live our lives and how, and I think that that's fiction's great power. It can humanize and it can complicate our perceptions of other, of, of people who we might not have normally have experience with. And that's what I love 
Yes, and some people, um, I'm not talking about this novel in particular, but with the, some people make it and some don't, and that creates a real tension, I think, as you're reading. You kind of think, is this, is this character, how's it going to play out for them? Uh, you know, and it, it, it does, it's quite a, it's got a lot of dramatic tension as a result of the, if your exploration of these issues. Thank you. And I, that's, I mean, it's something I really go for. You know, there's, I, there's, some, there's a lot to be said that, you know, there's a great deal of tension that arises from the fact that anyone could go at any minute in the story or anything could happen, that nothing is off the table. You know, I think there's, you know, we, we're watching a sitcom and we know pretty much what the narrative is going to do uh, for those 30 minutes. And, you know, I think literary fiction or fiction in general is is often the, the delights are derived from the fact that it's much different than that that anything can happen and that these this care this story doesn't need to turn out uh happy um no but nor does it it's 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 um i found myself thinking about the fact that happy and unhappy aren't particularly useful terms in ter- in terms of how you read the characters lives i could um you know jake is living through the withering she's got a lot of student debt life is not fun for her in the way that it won't be fun for a lot of um younger people of this generation if, if things keep going the way they're yes. going but you don't think oh she's not tragic she's not a victim she's just like this is her life and she's trying to work work her way through it absolutely and i think the the you know there are writers who sort of put forth this worldview that everything is darkness and love does not exist and you know we're all doomed and i find that that very juvenile as well and i and i find it false um and so in my writing and in my storytelling, I've noticed over, I've been doing it for a while now, but I noticed that I, I often gravitate towards these gestures of hope and small gestures of love, you know, that aren't futile, but aren't going to change the world necessarily. But there are things that affirm our humanity and affirm our connection with one another, because that's what keeps me going anyway. But there is some pretty beautiful moments about love in in the novel. Not that um, I don't think the characters would be using that that word. But I think both Everett and Harris have quite beautiful moments, um, romantic moments. Well, I, want, I don't want to you know spoil that um, are really affecting. But they they're also unexpected, and they also come when the characters are later in life. And I think as an older person, as a person in their fifties, I was like. Yes, thank goodness people can, <laughs> these things, you know, people keep seeking those connections their whole life. They don't give up. Yeah, and I, I love the idea of, you know, th- this is a sort of an epic, It's it's been called an epic uh, story by some people. And it's in, in, I really like the idea of having some non-traditional or sort of non- uh, unexpected relationships taking place within the context of an epic story like this. Um, there was a somebody, a, a, a reader called called it woke Steinbeck, and I got a lot of enjoyment out of that. Were they, was uh, that a compliment or were they? Yeah, no, it seemed like, like a compliment. I, I, I don't see woke as a as a negative. Uh, uh, no, it's often there have been people use the people who use the term. I'm they not do. Quite sure what their what their intention is. No, but this person seemed to have a, a positive view of that, and so yeah, I, I I love that idea of being able to capture some you know 
some types of love and some and some ways of loving that uh, aren't you know necessarily seen in a story or haven't been necessarily seen in a story like this before. And because you certainly explore the different kinds of bonds people have, and they and so romantic love isn't just physical all the time. Um, I'm thinking of one of the, the relationships that sort of goes into hibernation, for want of a better word, for, for, for decades, but, but remains strong nonetheless. But I also was quite moved by, as I started to understand you all working with biological ties uh, and, and questioning their, not questioning, and obviously people are biological beings and they have those ties, but I know that I had I had two men, I call my father, um, these days probably three, um, my mum, and I really appreciated that. Uh, and I was kind of curious to know what is that particular issue about, like, what is a family? How is a family made up? Um, and I know it's, it's talked a lot about in queer culture, the idea of kind of what is a family, but you're doing it within um, historical constraints and historical drama. So it's kind of, I suppose, there are more secrets in, in, in history. Maybe these things were discussed less. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, there are some of it was rooted in my own experience. Like I, my brother, my, my parents are, have both passed away as well as all of my grandparents. So I'm, I have an older brother and he and I are kind of the, the upper canopy of our family tree. You know, we're the elder statesman uh, at, at this point, which feels very strange and sort of surreal. Um, but we recently discovered that our great grandfather who had the name Christie who was like a trapper and was a you know a very kind of Canadian uh, early settler kind of guy. He was in fact not a Christie. He was a foundling who was left on the doorstep of the Christie family um, in uh, the place where we grew up. And so this word Christie that is attached to me that has been passed down through these generations really is essentially, you know, it's either meaningless or it's meaningful, but not meaningful in the way that we would normally think of this sort of patriarchal structure of the family. And, and you know, that coupled with the fact that I have so many friends who are same-sex couples who have adopted or who, you know, uh, all the beautiful variations of family that I see in my life and in my community, you know, I, you know, you come to see the fact that a family is a thing that is built much more than it is born. Uh, a family is a, is a relationship that is established and nurtured much more than, you know, whose DNA you have knocking around in your, in your blood. And so, you know, I, I think that this sort of family saga type narr narrative in the past has been kind of a patriarchal phenomenon in the sense there's this family tree and it's defined by men mainly and you know it leaves all these people out and so I, I I really like the idea of sort of renovating this structure with a with a new kind of approach to the idea of family. Yes I, I know that I, I don't have a biological relative with the name Cunningham even though it is my legal name um, right. my, other than my brother but he like me we are related to it. We are full, you know, full brother and sister, but we're both Cunningham, but our father has died and my, my mother doesn't use that name anymore. And I was quite confronted, to be honest, when I realised that. <laughs> and I don't, I now don't really know what bothered me. And sometimes when people said, would you change your name? It's like, no, that's my name. It's like, it wouldn't occur to me to do it. But I certainly, it was certainly a shock when that first, when I realised that. 
Because the meaning of naming, you know, what is the meaning yeah. of naming? Yeah, what is, and why must we, na- and we, we need names, obviously, but yet they're so fraught and there's so much baggage involved with these words that follow us through our lives, right? And yeah, it's, that's fascinating. I think, and, you know, the, the, those experiences are very common, I think, those sort of, you know, complexities of family, you know? Um, I want, with just to go back to Woke Steinbeck, I, or more just Steinbeck, not Woke, <laughs> uh, I am curious to know how, um, how much the Steinbeck's work impacted on your work because I must have it's not like I read it thinking oh this is Steinbeck Steinbeck ish that that is the ideas around depression and dust bowl and homelessness for some of the characters through some of the sequences well I suppose it's some of it's literally set during the dust bowl isn't it and then there's like this recurring dust bowl how much did that was that sort of an accidental connection in that that good writers come up work with similar ideas or were you kind of more deliberately drawing on, on that body of work I mean, I think it was more sort of implicit than something I thought about. But I mean, his work was, you know, I, I read Steinbeck fairly early in my reading life, you know, 17, 18. And I, Grapes of Wrath, I reread it while I was writing this novel and I was blown away by its power and its ability to portray humanity with such care and with such respect and sort of a dignity, you know, as particularly poor people, which is something that is very close to me. Um, and, you know, so I, I wasn't attempting to emulate Steinbeck by any means, but I think that there is a, there's a beautiful kind of sincerity to Steinbeck that I love. And that's, you know, there's the line from the Grapes of Wrath, the famous line, you know, what if we're all part of one big soul? What if there's no such thing as the self? And what if we're all part of one big soul? And, and I, you know, that's a very, you know, you could get ridiculed for saying that in many graduate uh, lit crit uh, circles, you know, that's a very human and very almost, almost, you know, uncomfortably optimistic thing to say. But I love botanical it. circles, actually. Yeah, but but I love it. Like, and I think that there, you know, that is what I look to literature for is for that humanity, and, and you know, that was something that Steinbeck did. Um, aside from his difficulty writing women, you know, and his some views that he carried in his own personal life that I don't necessarily agree with there was this base level of humanity in all of his work that i uh that i respect and i and i and i aspire to yeah the idea of one souls um one soul does bring me back to to trees how much research did you do into some of the um ideas around uh, tree sharing resources forests being sort of a single being as well as a series of individual trees that 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 kind of um well, it's, it's sort of botanical work or scientific work, but it's also got a philosophical component that's really quite compelling, I think. It does, yeah. And it was that was a rabbit hole that I quite happily plunged myself down into and spent some months there. Um, also, I mean, I you know, I, I live on a, a thickly forested little island off the coast of Vancouver called Galliano Island and surrounded by, you know, giant Douglas firs and western red cedars. And so... My interest is not only, you know, philosophical or scientific, but my, and, and from a fiction writer standpoint, my interest is also just on a personal level. I like spend all of my time 
in these forests. And I, so I got completely seduced by the fact that these trees are communicating within one another, that these trees are sharing resources in ways that we never knew they were before, that they actually warn each other of coming predators or of insect infestations. Um, they communicate through fungal networks, but also through hormones they release into the air. And so it, the more it's the kind of thing that the more you look into it, the more complexity you find, which is I think is true of a lot of natural phenomena. You know, you start looking into one particular aspect of the ocean plankton for example and then all of a sudden a whole world opens up of interconnectedness and incredible complexity and that happened with trees and i'm still you know i'm still i'm just i could read every tree book that i i that i come across and that's why i enjoyed your book so much oh thank you yeah um with I was really struck by when I read recently that trees sort of feed that idea of giving each other, um, fuel, fueling each other through root, root systems isn't just within species either. That it's it, that that I mean that that really did blow me away. I think I had assumed that there was some tribalism among trees. Sure, yeah, naturally we humans would expect that, but um, again, trees win, uh, and trees are yeah, it's incredible, and I think there's so much left to be discovered. I get that sense, you know, in my research, I spoke with a leading researcher at UBC who does a lot of this work and she, you know, she's her, 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 her feeling was that it's just going to keep opening up, that there is an almost an unlimited amount of complexity that we're, that is ready for us to discover with respect to how forests as organisms function. Um, I had another question, but I think that's such a perfect place to end, and we are about two minutes from the end. So I think that that I would like to leave it with that because my other question, I was going to move into questions about fungal attack and things, and I don't think I'm going to leave it. I don't think we don't need to discuss fungal attack and die back at this point. <laughs> but um, it's been a real pleasure, Michael. Is there anything you wanted to say since you've got a few Australian listeners on this podcast before? Because you haven't got the, you're not getting the chance to meet them in person this year anyway. Hopefully, you'll be back next year, maybe. Um, I, I do want to mention just that the 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 fact that I was in Adelaide just after the bushfires, um, and that I had so many Australian people come up to me and want to talk about trees and want to talk about, particularly about trees that they had lost. And that, that immense grief that I felt when I was there, um, has really stayed with me. And it's something I, you know, I think about quite often and I, you know, I, so I just want to take the chance to extend my condolences to you for those souls that you lost um yeah. in that no day. it was it was um it caused a grief that the pandemic has not for me personally i have to say it felt it felt personal that, that in a way that the pandemic feels slightly impersonal it's like it's sure like the, it's yeah a but the, and you've done a good job managing the <laughs> pandemic as well right yeah. which you know which is kudos to you for that Okay, well, as you as, as we're about to finish, is, where are you hold up? You are you hold up on an island in a house in a city. Where is your your fa where are your family? You and your family keeping safe? Um, we we live in between uh, the small island now as well. We we have a place in Victoria, uh, British Columbia, which is on another bigger island. So I live on two different islands. Um, and but yeah, I was holed up in on Galliano Island, uh, in the middle of the trees, which was you know not the worst place in the world to be.
Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks, Sophie. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Mm-hmm.